0: everyone uh we're i'm here on a solo uh with you this week and uh, we got a lot to talk about uh it is december uh, 26th okay the day after christmas the day after as you know a lot of people debate uh whether or not we should uh uh you know be telling telling people thanks uh merry christmas and congratulating people on their holidays and um And I really don't want to even get into that, but it is somehow one of those annual debates that I think that the, you know, underclassmen, freshmen, as we used to call them, rookies, uh, first years, early students can handle because uh, it's something that you just, after a couple years, you've just been down this road, you've just had this discussion so many times ad nauseum, that... uh, that you just don't feel like bringing it up again. Just like the maulid is something in the community that comes up and 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 uh, if you've been around the block for 10, 15 years, I mean, how many times can you bring up the same thing? And uh, especially when these are s- things that are, uh, I wouldn't even say secondary, I think they're they're pretty important. From from one aspect is that the birth of Sayyidina Isa ibn Maryam and the attribution to him being uh, a son of God is a big deal. This is not a small deal. Now they say, well, we're celebrating the birth of Jesus and not his, his being the son of God. Well, it's, a, it's the celebration of him as the son of God. And people just have to realize these ayahs uh, in the Quran, in Surah Maryam, at the end, Surah Maryam is an amazing surah that everything in, in it, ends uh, towards the end, ends with أن الله سبحانه وتعالى Says aboutه وقالوا اتخذ الرحمن ولدا لقد جئتم شيئا إدا تكاد السماوات يتفطرن من من هو تنشق الأرض وتحر وتخر الجبال هدى أن دعوا للرحمن ولدا وما ينبغي للرحمن أن يتخذ ولدا إن كل من في السماوات والأرض إلا آتى الرحمن عبدا ااا سو uh, graphic is the imagery about the idea of God taking a son Because why? Taking a son is a sign of weakness The only reason we have offspring is because of uh, weakness This is the nature of people who take on offspring Is It's all about weakness Okay. So uh, this ayah, what it says, just to give you a background on it And it's very important to know these ayahs um, ولدا, They say the merciful took a son Okay, لقد جئتم شيئا you have taken on something massive. Okay, تكاد السماوات the the, the the sky when it hears this, it wants to split open. Okay, split the sky which is protecting us to split open. minhu وَتَنْشَقُ الْأَرْضِ and the earth which is housing us. Okay, and 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 our home wants to split open and swallow us. وَتَخِرُ الْجِبَالُ هَدَّ and the mountains that are staring down at us want to collapse upon us and destroy us okay, okay. The, the mountain wants to collapse from what it hears and because you're basically saying God is weak he basically saying he has a need and in this aya what is telling us taking on spouses uh, taking on children and having parents are all attributes of need and weakness okay they're all attributes of need and weakness yes in spouses there is a lot of good but Uh, uh, Like companionship And what exists in paradise Like nobody has needs in paradise Right But taking on a spouse Is something that happens in paradise Why? So because there is enjoyment there But it's fundamentally A sign of need and weakness Okay So this is But you're basically saying God is weak And this is the theology of of Islam And it's it's, uh, In Surah Al-Ikhlas Is more so A refutation of the trinity than it is of shirk, right? قُلْ What is the difference between ahad and wahad? What is the difference between ahad and wahad? Wahad is something that's one, unique, single. Ahad is something that is one in itself, okay? So if, if there is you yourself, you are every single human being, here's only one of them, set aside the science fiction of uh, multiple verse and whatever, uh, and, 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 and and people, and of course we know that Satan Ibn Abbas is narrated to have related uh, a statement from himself, a tafsir from himself that there are other worlds, and in it there is another Ibn Abbas, and then there's, uh, a, in other words, Someone just like you on that universe Set that aside for now Because that's not something that is is not even a uh, Going to be uh, Near the level of Reliability and uh, uh, in- Enough For us to consider as like a fact Likewise Ibn Arabi says the same thing Based on mukashafat And mukashafat is nothing more uh, In terms of knowledge on the level of speculation Not saying it's not true But it's not at the level of uh, inf- uh, uh, facts That uh, reliability That we could base our words on And on our lives on And our understanding of anything on Yes, it's out there It could be But forget that There's only one you There's not going to be another person like you Right? There's not going to be another you So you in yourself is, are wahid However, you consist of so many parts Right? We don't consist We're not one piece Like a piece of marble Right, like one piece. Ahad means one in himself. Right, one in himself, singular and indivisible. And this is one of the attributes of God, indivisibility. So Allah Azza wa Jal uses this ayah because the, the theology of uh, Christians has to do with waḥidun If you look at Arabic, Christ, uh, Arab Christians, they say waḥidun mutafrīq, one but separated in himself. And uh, قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ Allah Samad. السَّمَدْ Samad is uh, the et- eternal. And there are many, many different uh, definitions. I'm curious now actually how uh, this tafsir translates the word samad. There are many, many different translations for the word samad. And believe it or not, it's one of those uh, attributes and, and, and Qur'anic words that I haven't found a lot of uh, uniformity. In its translation, or even in the tafsir, so let's just take a second here and open up the tafsir. Um, now, my brothers in Birmingham are not going to be happy because it is the tafsir of uh, Mufti Taki Osmani's father, who is Mufti Muhammad Shafi. and I think it's it is a, I mean, very good job. He did a very good job. They uh, tell me to look at Surah Al-Baha and see what he says about um whether I haven't looked at that yet yeah he treats it as Allah is besought of all needing none okay needing none so eternal in that respect could uh, could also mean from the aspect of eternal not needing a son. Okay, so a samad is having no need. So again, it goes back to the idea of a son means need. All right, you have need to prolong your, your existence and your, your, your lineage through a son. And human beings on this earth, you have a lot of sons, all right, to carry on your life after you. After you, well, what, what was meaningful to you, right, they will carry it on. Okay, and then obviously, this is a clear. He wasn't given birth And he didn't give birth Okay um, He neither begotten anyone Nor was he begotten Alright He didn't give birth يلد, And he wasn't begotten So uh, A clear pointing to uh, The Trinity uh, أحد, And equal to him Has never been anyone Okay And um, Very clear uh, is here That this is actually More a refutation Of the Trinity Than of anything else Okay. Historically speaking, the Muslims have been, in their middle time period, had more of a rivalry with the Christians than with uh, the pagans. Early on, it was the pagans. The pagans became really uh, easy uh, to deal with for the Muslims afterwards. Uh, None of the pagans put up a civilization uh, near what the Muslims had after the fall of the Byzantine Romans. Uh, the, the the Byzantine, who were already Christian at the time, so that, that wouldn't even count, but the Persians, who were Majus, or uh, Zoroastrian, or what have you, uh, and once they went down, that was really it for the pagan cultures, and the only culture that was around that was um, of any value or worth were the uh, was the Christian uh, civilization. And today, I want to make another point, is that... Um, Today, I find so there are some really meaningful, uh, I guess you could call them alliances, ideological, common cause alliances, uh, mainly with the Catholics. I find it mainly with the Catholics, and it's for two reasons. Number one, Catholicism is a lot more consolidated than Protestantism. There are a zillion ways to be a Protestant, okay? You can be a Protestant in whichever way you want. And by and large, the, re- the more religious versions or branches of the Protestants tend to be uh, very uh, anti-Muslim, okay? So you, you got Protestants, either they'll be basically liberals, right, with a religion. And I've met many of these people, and there was a group here that used to invite me, and I got invited um, by a ri- Riverside church here. It's a very small church that a woman ran, and I get there, and she said, we're having it in the park, so I get to the park, and I see her, uh, and she's very nice people, and it was basically her, she, she was religious, and she was the minister, and her husband was basically a, a, a political guy, bank guy, very nice people, and uh, they gathered together, and um, I give a talk on Islam, I figured that they just want to know what Islam is, I gave a talk on uh, Islam, and what turns out is that they're like, okay, well, uh, that's the sermon, right? And I was like, what? And she's like, yeah, that's the sermon. And every week we get someone different, you know, from a different, and I was like, but I'm, I'm from a different religion. And she's like, yeah, yeah it's okay. It's all, it's all good, right? So, okay. So basically in Protestantism, uh, it's sort of an open source. Anyone could do their thing. In Catholic, and, and and the more religious ones of the Protestants, and there are very conservative Protestants, Okay, out there In terms of even gender rules Very conservative And they tend to be Very nice people However They are virulently Anti-Muslim And they, they, they The things that they're spreading now Needs to be counteracted Because they are spreading Information Basics That uh, About God About Allah azza jal, That the Muslims worship A moon God Etc Very basic things That are actually spreading Believe it or not It's actually spreading. There are people who are not evangelicals, who don't even know the source of what information they got, and uh, you come across them and you realize that they are saying, repeating evangelical uh, refutations, which are completely false to begin with, right? Uh, I mean, so uh, they're not even near the truth. And I'm finding that that's more uh, in need of being responded to. So what is the nature of God himself, right, uh, in Islam? Who, the, the, who who do Muslims worship to begin with? So these fundamentals need to be answered back. And I think anyone who's ever entered into these debates with these evangelicals uh, needs to form something, because I think it's going to be more relevant going forward. And maybe this is an American thing, but I think that it will be we underestimate the importance okay, of uh, what the evangelicals are doing to muddy up the waters On uh, the uh, actual meanings of our dean, uh, and spreading this on the internet, and they are all over the web. All right, they are all over the web, and they're not going anywhere because they transmit through families. Any group that transmits their ideas and their rituals through families, it's going to last. Right, it's going to, it's going not going anywhere. Any group that relies on converts can go really quick. And what I mean by that is any ideology where you have to buy into the ideology, it's not going to be like a father from grandson, from from son to grandson to grandfather, right? Those types of ideologies that do that, they're going to last. But if you have to actually like Marxism, right? Even uh, LGBT, like you're not going to just be born into it. Right? Anyone who fails to have it, a mechanism of family in their systems, they will not last long. As soon as the marketing trend and fad goes out, and as soon as the financial backing collapses, the whole idea collapses. The, well, the idea could be there, but the power behind it collapses because you lose the numbers. Marxism is a good example in marxism marxism once the soviet union went down yeah uh, you have marxists around you got but there were a couple professors here and there in the world a couple dozen right intellectuals here and there big time could be right the idea is there but uh the the power of the movement is gone once the financial backing collapsed okay Uh, It's not something that's going to carry on the way Judaism carries on, the way Christianity carries on, even maybe other religions like Sikhism or Hinduism, okay? So back to my point is with Catholics, and believe it or not, the paper that I wrote, the the response that I wrote to Jonathan Brown, whom we had this debate in, in Turkey, and I think we were both hoping that it didn't come up. We both went on this um, this trip to Turkey in which uh, the the group was called the Ehsan Academy, and I recommend people check them out. The Ehsan Academy uh, invited us. We had this great trip, and we gave these talks, and after a while, we got going with the students. And uh, it was good because you got long sessions with the students, and every evening, we would have a group session. So I had about two sessions a day, two or three sessions a day. Each one was about 60 to 75 minutes. At the end of the day, we both got together and we had these Q&As. And I I think both of us, neither of us wanted this subject to come up, but it did. And eventually they asked about what kind of political stance we're going to take towards uh, uh, the LGBT. And of course, I said very clearly what my stance was. And he said what his stance was. And I think that Jonathan Brown actually... Didn't know what kind of reaction he would get, whether I would, you know, just cut him off and be so angry with him. But I felt that his position was a mistake that wasn't one of those which is, will put you out of the dean. It's not like he was saying it was okay to be gay. It's not like he was saying uh, that this was fine. He was making a political stance. Which I think, uh, with which I consider to be uh, not only the wrong stance, but a sinful stance, but not one that would put you out of Islam or outside ahead Sunnah and Jama'ah. It would be a sinful mistake and a deadly error, one hundred percent, and would open the door to so many worse. Uh, uh, open the. It would give precedent to worse things and things that you can't imagine. And I'm sure that sitting here, uh, all of us, fifteen years ago. Right, 15 years ago, how old was I? I can't even count, okay? Uh, we could not imagine that this was even a debate, even a subject in de- of a debate, okay? But it is. So what happened is, just to recap, if people didn't read the article, don't know his position, is that he's against it, uh, obviously. There's no even discussion. He knows that uh, the ayahs uh, and the hadith that talk about this, uh, that the act is, is one thing. But he says that, politically speaking, as a, as a uh, type of consistency And a way to ensure our rights here in America That we have to support it politically And I said uh, My response was simply No for the simple hadith That the Prophet sent And principle that is known by all scholars That The forbidden cannot be supported in any way That unless the text Or the sunnah Gives us that exception okay? Such as what? Such as you can support You can support the worship in, uh, uh, of, uh, of Allah Azza wa Through the false aqa'id uh, And religions right? uh, Or what we don't believe in Of uh, Judaism and Christianity Of course we do believe that at one point That these were sound faiths But they were corrupted However, and what's the proof of this? Proof of this is that if a man marries a Christian woman he must, he is obligated to allot her a space in the house, okay, a, a co- sort of cordoned off space in the house for her to worship according to her rituals, according to her religion, right? So, the, yeah, there's not going to be all over the house these symbols because he's, he's obligated to raise his family, his children up upon Islam, but he's obligated to allow his spouse to worship. Right? Uh, and have her symbols in her own room or in her own space. So that's something false, but the text, the sunnah, commands us to allow for it. So we do know when there is an exception, we know of the exception. And in this case, the Prophet, in, in, in every other case, the Prophet said, uh, Whosoever uh, harbors and whosoever supports, okay, man wa muhdithan muhdithan. Right. The curse of Allah Azza wa Be on the one who supports a muhdith Someone who's doing something wrong Alright So Muhdith is the least Word for A wrongdoing Because a muhdith It implies Anyone who brings something new And sort of destabilizes the matter Or brings something questionable even Alright A hadith Muhdith is like a mubtada Someone who brings a bid'ah Right and Allah is saying the curse of Allah is someone who supports a mubtada, okay, a bidah. So let alone something that is a, 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 for which people were destroyed, an entire city was destroyed. So that was my point, and I think that he was sort of, I guess, surprised, maybe pleasantly surprised that I didn't have a complete flip out and cut him off and stop talking to him, and that's because in our religion. In the Sharia and the Sunnah, there are there is a gradation of wrongs. Not everything wrong, okay, is something a cause of burn the bridge and burn all ties. There are causes. There are things that would call for someone to burn all ties. All right. So we do have that. It's not like it doesn't exist. It's not like it does exist. There are certain things, and that is r- ridda. Basically, ridda. You. Erase all memory, all relations, everything, apostasy. But, and then you have other heresies in which you would just not fraternize, right? You would not fraternize. You would not have ukhawah. You would not have this brotherhood of Islam anymore is cut between us. Once you enter into certain heresies, the negations of clear hadith, okay? The negations of things that are made obligatory but not daruri in aqidah, okay? And in knowledge But then when you have a mere sin A mere position that is incorrect Like a shafii used to tell his companion in Egypt Who was it? I can't recall He had a companion in Egypt He used to tell him So he used to tell to his companion in Egypt give fatwa in a matter that if you made a mistake in it that the people will simply say no he made a mistake but don't get involved in subjects where if you make a mistake in it okay the people will say you made kufr because what he's talking about is aqidah issues kalam issues okay where if you make a mistake in aqidah, the response is you make kufr Right? or you exited sunnah, that you're not part of the sunnah in jama'ah. Whereas if you make a mistake in fiqh, someone will just say it's a mistake. right? And when I talked about, put up a post one time on the uh, relations between the scholars, and that Imam al-Bukhari uh, uh, took from Imam Ahmad, Imam Ahmad took from Imam Shafi, okay? uh, I think I even started before that with Imam Muslim, to Imam Bukhari, to Imam Ahmed, okay, to Shafi'i to Malik, right, to Abdurrahman ibn Hurmuz, Al-Araj, okay, to Abu Huraira, radiallahu Ta'ala an, right, to the Prophet. Then Malik never publicly studied with Al-Araj, so that's why he never quotes him in Hadith. Al-Araj is Abdurrahman ibn Hurmuz, and he's a Persian of Persian origin, lived in Medina, ended up dying in Alexandria uh from the older sahaba uh i mean from the tabi'een and he took from big sahaba like abu huraira and imam malik uh, when he when al-a'raj abir rahman ibn hurm was retired he went home but he, he stayed in his house and he was very big on aqidah issues and this is why imam malik ended up this is one of the reasons that the biographers at least state That Imam Malik himself was very big on aqidah matters Like he took aqeedah very seriously Alright, so it's a mistake to think That when someone says Maliki, Shafi'in, Hanafi'in, and Hanbali That it's only fiqh that they're talking about No, each of these scholars had very crisp and clear-cut positions in aqeedah Okay, so that's number one uh, When Araj retired he took Imam Malik as a pupil in his house and he trained him privately on the condition that he never quote him. And the reason that Al-A'raj told Imam Malik, never quote me, uh, in other words, never cite me in a hadith narration. And you never see Malik saying, Hadathini Al-A'raj. Al-A'raj means the lame because he had a limp and and he didn't mind being called that. Um... is that it was a private gathering that's number one so there were no witnesses to the gathering so if imam malik brought a hadith from al-araj that was different there would be no one to substantiate it so imam malik puts himself in a position that he could be accused of basically bringing us something that we have no way to substantiate number two is that uh at that time was old and number three Malik at that time was young. And it's known in hadith transmission that if someone is old, and some that there comes a point where you stop taking his narration. Because as is known, once people get old, they start forgetting. Right? They simply start forgetting. It doesn't mean he's a bad transmitter. But when they're old, the nature of human beings is that they forget. And the muhaditheen recognize that. So once a scholar started getting old, they stopped taking his hadith. And anyone who just entered the circle of that sheikh, his transmission from that sheikh was no longer accepted. So, and you'll see many times that so-and-so, he is sound. However, his transmission from sheikh so-and-so are not accepted because sheikh, that sheikh was old at that time, okay? And on t- of, and on, uh, in the same vein, if a muhadith, if a transmitter of hadith was young, likewise, his transmissions when he was in, uh, uh, as a youth, were held it with some suspicion or circumcept or some pause and they were or they weren't accepted at all okay so if someone is transmitting a hadith and the only way that he had heard that hadith was when he was seven years old uh, and uh, in the circle of that sheikh then that hadith might be questionable right it would be questionable and then well you might say well what if we could corroborate it well if we could corroborate it we'll just go with the corroboration why do we need it right so from that respect, uh, Imam Malik was, uh, his, his, he never transmitted from Arit. Now, the reason we said this is that someone made a response and said, well, this is proof that all, if their teachers were the same, this is proof that there really should only be one madhab." And here is their basic error in that, yes, they're all in agreement on aqidah, on fundamentals that make, what makes someone a Muslim and what makes someone a Sunni. Okay, Sunni here meaning Islam just because we're Muslim doesn't mean we get our Islam correct all the time, right? No, just just because you do something doesn't mean you do it right all the time, right or wrong, right? Just because you're a baseball player doesn't mean you're a pitcher doesn't mean you throw strikes all the time. Just because you're a basketball player doesn't mean you hit the mark all the time. So likewise, just because you're a Muslim doesn't mean you're correct all the time. So... To be correct, when we simply say to be correct on the ma- on the f- fundamental matters, that's what the idea of being of, of us insisting upon Ahl-Sunnah and Jama'ah, that's what it's all about. It is all about getting the fundamentals correct. When we say fundamentals, what do we mean by that? We mean the texts of the Quran that are, can can only be understood in a certain way. All right, the the dalala, the what the text is pointing to is thabit right? right thabit meaning that what the text is pointing to the meaning wise in this respect in this manner right in these words is only can be one thing okay can only be one thing and and that's what we call alright Qat'i al thubut right Qat'i uh, al-thubut right Qat'i qat' al-dalala and that's condition number that's uh, the second condition one of the, the first condition is that if it's qatiyah thubut and al riwaya that it's widespread that every single muslim knows it and even some non-muslims will know it that is the second thing that uh, these two things together will make you a muslim or not a muslim right they will if you get them wrong these are the reasons why people would be considered not muslim the second one only that's what determines Sunniya. In other words, correctness Or at least being a Sunni Okay Being upon the Sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, Which is a term that Ibn Abbas Radiallahu Ta'ala Anhu Uh Uh uh, first uttered according to the strongest uh, history on it And none of the histories there are uh, uh, bulletproof But the history that you can go with Is that the phrase Ahl sunnah wal-Jama'ah Came in from Ibn Abbas From the, uh, Sayyidina Ali When Sayyidina Ali said we need to start responding to these groups And he was initially talking about the Khawaraj And Ibn Abbas is the first person who mentioned the phrase Ahl sunnah wal-Jama'ah Based upon the hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Who will be following me after there's, the, he said, the people who are upon my sunnah and the son of those khulafar rashidin al-mahdiin min badi, the righteous khulafar, and then someone pointed, uh, uh, who will be, uh, who will they be? And he said, the jama'ah, the majority. Now, if s- s- the third thing is anything thereafter, anything that can be through the text different upon, then we have madhahib and schools of thought. Okay, Madahib and schools of thought. So, um, uh, in response, what I, I didn't respond to this uh, person who said this, but they said that all the madhabs, there should be only one madhab, is that there is daruriyat things that make a person Muslim or not Muslim. You tell me that hajj is in Palestine. You tell me that there's only three prayers a day, or you say that there's another prophet. Or you say that actually you don't even have to believe in the Prophet Muhammad. Or you tell me that Allah azza created Adam through um, some other means other than directly himself. Okay. In other words, you take on a Darwinist position. We would simply say these are all so widespread and clearly known, right, that it's daruri. You wouldn't be a Muslim if you believe these things. Okay. Could you be a vegetarian and have steak? Right. Well, you could be a vegetarian and discuss other things like I don't know what this I'm sure that they have debates within them. What's a true vegetarian? But definitely, if you're eating steak, you're not going to be a vegetarian. Simple as that. There's no feelings involved. This is logic. Right. But anyway, it's modern times. It's post logic, post facts, post truth, post everything, uh, post sanity. Really, the age the that we're in is post sanity. OK, forget post truth. It's post sanity. Because opposites are now being sold to us, all right? Uh, uh, I was thinking the other day, I mean, subhanAllah, uh, uh, I'm 5'5". I'm five, five. What if I said I'm 5'5", five, five? I identify as 6'1"? I'm, I'm filling out my passport the other day, renewal, and it's telling me uh, what color are your eyes, what color is your hair, what's your height? And I'm thinking, <laughs> what happened here? What, what if I'm 5'5", five, five, but I identify, what if I say I want to identify as 6'8"? All right. I mean, how is that any different? Anyway, we're not going to ring the gender bell. We're not going to bring that subject up. But so that's the first thing. Now, anyway, to get to the point, we went to the point and I said that that's why I didn't get so upset uh, at the at the subject matter. And I'm so willing to at least discuss with him. And if it was any other thing, I wouldn't have even uh, kept his company or fraternize with him. I would just, you know, uh, have to have a more icy position because. Uh, Imam, Imam Malik, many other Imams, many things in the Sunnah tell us once someone crosses the boundary of not believing in something that is part of sun Sunnah jama'ah to believe, a aqeedah point. At that point you have to be careful who you're friends with. You have to monitor who who you're keeping company with. Okay. So at that point, you would really not fraternize with them anymore. You could be nice, you could work with them. If you have some, you know, for secular work, uh, be decent with them. But at that point, once someone becomes some sect, you're better off dealing with a Christian or or a Yehudi where the lines are clear. And this is where all this, and I was sort of a tangent, that I was saying that there are a group of Catholics who actually read my paper and my response. And they actually reached out to me. And some of them are out in Princeton. Other people are out in other different think tanks. And I realized, subhanAllah, I never knew these people and they are struggling and fighting and they're putting together a a, a serious fight against the basic norms, right? Or this is the collapse of the norms related to gender and sexuality. Then I totally respect it. And this is something, uh, uh, an alliance or at least it's just a cordial Um, recognition of one another and support on this issue that I think is really valuable, right? And uh, I'll be meeting with them later next month. Uh, They invited me to one of their meetings. And what I felt is that most interfaith meetings are about just having good relations, right? If you want to take it at the best, at the or the least of it is that. The worst of it, uh, i have no part in it which is basically let's all get together and pray together and all religions are one i have no part of that and uh i don't think any any you know person that i know uh, has any part in that uh, but when it comes if it's about let's just have relations just get to know you're the church next door you're the synagogue down the street right um you know that stuff is fine to me i have no problem with that but it's it's there's no meat and potatoes there. It's just getting to know one another. That's fine. But this I felt was actually substantial because the subject matters uh, that we talk about are, it's not this fuzzy, we all uh, just get along and it's all good. And to me, there's no intellectual substance in that. It's just meaningless. It's just, okay, we're neighbors, that's fine. At that point, whether you're Jew, Christian, or Sikh, whatever, at that point, it was just getting along and just that, I have no problem with that. That's part of our deen as well, right? But uh, this has substance to it because they're talking about, Uh, uh, Legal issues And in America We have another issue Where the atheists Are trying to get uh, The churches Synagogues And they're really Waging war on the Catholics So badly It's like a vendetta That they want to Make sure that all these things Are paying taxes Right That all the churches And all the um, Non-profit Religious nonprofits Start paying taxes And that'll definitely Alter the way that These institutions do business It's going to suck up uh, a lot of their uh, resources So it's an issue They want to uh, Of course the school curriculums Is something that they wage war on all right? The Protestants are all over that In the South in America all right? uh, f- Waging war with the uh, atheists on that So there are a lot of fronts And the legal case With the, uh, the, the fellow with his cake okay? uh, The Masterpiece Cake Shop Is another issue And my take on that is really simple and it's sort of based upon our our aqidah itself in which we divide things between daruriyat of Islam, daruriyat of sunniyah, right? What puts a person in Sunnah al-Jama'ah and then al-mukhtalaf that which can have a valid difference of opinion, okay? And just as in Islam, we say, if you are going to have a fight And hate someone and have a division and avoid someone's company over something that is mukhtalaf fihi, that is differed upon with valid differences of opinion, then you are from the height of the johal. You are at the apex. You have won the championship of ignorance, right? If you are going to differ and have such a difference of opinion that you would not even associate with someone. That degree of a difference of opinion, we would have to tell you, you are all right, one of the fit, causes of fitna in the community. Because we're not supposed to be like that. You could stay away. You could say, listen, I, I don't really feel comfortable with that opinion. I'll go pray over there. But, you know, if they're coming around, I'll definitely have them, uh, uh, sit with them, have tea with them, have coffee with them, and be friends with them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's fine. So, in the same way, there are businesses and needs that people have. Okay, that should be at the first level. And I would only break it in two levels necessary for life. That if you were to deny me and and cut 70 or 50 percent of my opportunities in this field, then my life would be altered. And that would be, for example, renting out a place to live, having a job. okay, getting a job, uh, going to grocery stores. Okay, gas stations. You can't have a gas station for Christians only, right? You can't have a supermarket for uh, Spanish people only. You can't have a, uh, you know, you can't be a cardiologist that serves Muslims first, right? No, these things are 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 uh, uh, life altering. Okay, so if you cut in half the amount of neurologists that a person, a family could go to, for example, there aren't fifty thousand neurologists okay, in the state. There aren't a thousand neurologists in the county, right? You, once you cut them down, you really altered the way I'm going to live. You, you caused me a major hassle, okay? So I would call these, you know, just in a rough draft, major hassle services that nobody should be, you cannot turn anyone away from. However, however, in this case, with the case of the Masterpiece Cake Shop, it is such a minor hassle. It is not a major life and death thing, right? It's not major. And he's not, the, he wasn't denying service on of the whole store. He's just saying this one thing. And by the way, I'll tell you how I would have done it as well. I'll tell you how, it, and in the future, how I would do it uh, if I was in that situation, okay? Uh, so I would divide it into two. And I would say in in this latter one, in this latter issue, there should be some leeway, okay? And now the people who tell me slippery slope and say, well, now that you tell me, well, uh, uh, that you can't serve a gay marriage, well, what's next if you tell me that what if, how should I know that next thing you say, I'm not going to serve blacks? I'm going to say that is the most ridiculous thing because... What we're talking about is a religion that is th- over 2,000 years old and a, something that has existed in humanity and religion that is known by all humankind, right? It's known, we're already, so in other words, the precedents are there. We're not bringing something, there's not gonna be something new, right? So you're allotting for these religions that have existed. Okay, number two, how would I have handled the situation? I would have handled the situation, and and even in the future, very simply, okay? It might sound bad. It might sound questionable, and I'm open to discussion on it. But if I was the guy, what I would have done is have an employee who doesn't have these sensibilities do the job, make their cake, okay? And then give that uh, money that they pay Give it out Give it to the guy who did the job And don't benefit from it And Allah knows best if if that would be accepted Again, that's just a suggestion that some of the fuqaha could look into But let's say you are in a situation You own a flower shop Okay, this is your source of livelihood Now these people come and say Well, you have to make me a flower Okay Right. Well, you as the shop have to make the flower Not you as an individual So if I even temporarily hire someone Or I have a, co- a colleague who doesn't mind doing it And they do it okay, And they take that money And I say, listen, I'm not going to benefit from that wealth Because I don't believe that that wealth is halal for me And you just give it to someone else to do uh, to, to, to take the person who made that bouquet Or made that cake to have That is a possible solution going forward from a shot standpoint and it, again it's up for discussion but uh i mean really though how many there, there are not that many people who own flower shops and cake shops and this is my point is that uh you're really just trying to make a point is really what's going on is because how many fl- uh how many flower shops and cake shops are there in the country it's very easy to go in and, and, and find yourself another supplier It's not that hard. But anyway, that's just my two cents on the subject. I think that it's um, anything. I'm going to conclude with this before we take a break. Anything that becomes a moral issue in America today is going to enter a quagmire and go off into a tailspin because the founding fathers, as human beings, assumed a lot about morality and about the sources of morality. And maybe you can even say that they didn't assume because one of the founding fathers, I need to actually remember whom, it said, said that this country is based upon uh, um, a religious people, right? That 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 the, what they are, I need to get you the quote actually. It's not fair for me to say such a big thing that uh, without quoting it, so I will get you the quote on that. Uh, but they did not imagine that uh, people's morality would have total different sources. And it all goes back to the same thesis that we have been driving home from day one. I made it very clear on the Alpha Male uh, uh, podcast episode, I've made it very clear over and over and over, epistemolo- cosmology and epistemology. At the time of the Founding Fathers, everyone shared pretty much the same cosmology, that there's a God, okay, even though they were, they were deists, in other words, they didn't believe God should have a say, but morals, right and wrong, was basically based upon the Bible, Okay. They assumed that that's how things would be going forward. Okay. And did not outline the source of morality. You cannot have law without morality, without right and wrong. So, what is the solution going forward? I would say what Scalia said, Justice Scalia. Okay, see, a lot of the British and the Australians might not really relate to this. But we have a justice out there named Scalia. You should read his stuff. He just passed away last year. Uh, and he's actually pretty funny. He's really informal in his writing, right? And he actually puts little jokes uh, or, or, or sarcastic remarks in his briefs and his responses. Uh, but Scalia says, look, all we have to go on is the actual letter of the law of the Constitution. So just go by that. And that's all you have to go by. But I'm telling you, the liberals... Right, that they there is no way in the world they're gonna go on that. Okay, they are going to go by the interpretation of the spirit of the law, which basically means nothing, which basically means whatever we want anything to mean. All right, Uh, it's gonna mean what you know what we want it to mean, and that's why even in Sharia, the idea of a text when Allah and His Messenger say a word, the first route is the literal meaning, and only if there is a sarif, some reason. That we cannot accept the literal meaning, and that reason is going to be a scriptural reason, okay? A scriptural reason or a logical reason that we will not go by the letter of the law, and we could discuss that uh, when we come back, we'll take a break. You're listening to the Safina Society podcast. Follow us online at SafinaSociety.org. all right bismillah we're back and we're talking about the original state of all kalam all speech in our text is the literal meaning and the only time when the literal meaning the only genre in which the literal is not the intention the first intended intended meaning and which in fact uh shouldn't be is in poetry right in in poetry and in art in general Subtlety, uh, allegory, uh, everything, it's non-literal. That's the language, right? However, when you're talking about anything literal, the law, uh, theology, anything else, okay, simple information, the literal is the basis of everything. So that's the starting point, I should say, of all interpretation is the literal meaning. The only time you move away from the literal meaning is when it would cause a conflict, internal conflict, or if... Uh, we, we, in, with the text itself, or if it would be illogical. To give, give an example, uh, okay. So literally this verse says, if the call to prayer is made on the day of Friday, right? الْجُمْعَةِ uh, Go move quickly to the remembrance of Allah and leave off all selling. So if you took this literally, then it is for every single salah, but it's not supposed to be literally. It's only, f- uh, it's only for Salat al-Jum'ah. So this is called Ta'mim, is that the word salah is used, but, on- but Jum'ah only is intended. In other words, uh, Dhuhr, right? The khutbah and the, the turakahs of salah is it, what's intended. So this is in a, a sense, a non-literal meaning. Okay, uh, if you call for the prayer on the day of Friday, then go. That means that if you took that literally, in other words, the Quranists should be dropping everything five times a day and going to remember Allah جل, But there's no format mentioned. Okay, so that's an example, right? Where we know that it's Juma, but the verse actually says Salah only Salah. Right. So that's one. Another an, an example of a logical uh, impossibility would be the statement of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam to the Sahaba, do you know where the sun goes after it sets? The Sahaba say Allah and His Messenger knows best. Then the Prophet ﷺ said it goes unto the throne of Allah Azza prostrates itself and seeks permission to rise again. Right? Now, first of all, a, a spherical object Cannot, how does a spherical object make sejda? That's the first one. So, therefore, the sejda of the sun is not the, the, the literal sejda that we have, which is on seven limbs. Forehead and nose being one limb, the two palms, the two knees, and the two toes. Okay? Uh, sets of toes. And in sejda, we're supposed to bend our toes so that even the toes face the qibla. Uh, so, it's clearly not that. Secondly, it is clearly a majaz altogether because at all times the sun is setting somewhere and rising somewhere simultaneously okay so how is it setting and if it's how is it doing that if it's setting and rising simultaneously okay just as somewhere the sun is setting right now and somewhere the sun is rising now we know that so therefore the entire meaning is a majazi meaning that the the sun is in a constant state of seeking Allah's permission to do its job which is to rise and sit. okay? So that's an example of majaz. Now, what would not be, which is the majority of how people use majaz, is that they would want to go for allegorical interpretation because our era or our time and place that this belief or law or aqidah would cause discomfort or would not be popular. That is not a source of majaz. So it's important to know to study when allegory can be used and when it can't be. Okay. Uh, Because mainly reformist types will misuse reform and they will apply or, or majaz or allegory and they will apply everything to be allegorical as soon as they don't like it. As soon as it's not fitting with the times. Right. Not fitting with the times. Or not fitting with the social norms of this place, or the people and their and their um, uh, uh, the people and their sensibilities. Okay, so uh, that would be something that is should be known and studied. And I I, I am continuously and I'm not uh, uh, intending to just talk about any school in specific because I don't even hardly know much uh, about I don't know all the schools out there but the islamic schooling i am just every year my, my mind gets numb thinking about how much is just wasted that our students in 12th grade and and 10th and 11th and even 9th grade like they're still on abu lahab and, and and abu jahl all right you know who is abdul Muttalib? it's just, just drives me nuts because these kids they're studying physics they're out there on Twitter, they're out there uh, on everything, they're, they know stuff, their brains are working, and yet they're not being given the tools that they need to actually understand their deen in light of what, what else, everything else that they see, okay? They're being activists, they're out there, they're in causes, they're, they, they read, right? Well, I mean, uh, some of them do, Okay. But they're out there. They're thinking about things, but they're not giving some basic tools that really should be just fundamentals. And I told before, and I I worked in a Islamic school before, and I had a curriculum in four years. I ended up only working there one year because I had a, 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 a I had to couldn't continue because as usual, the schools are underfunded, right? And I couldn't continue. So, but I had a curriculum where. Uh, I only had in charge of the high school. If I was in charge of the seventh grade, I would have, it would have been different. But I took the fiqh, I was teaching them the risala of Ibn Abi Zaid, and my idea was, we are going to finish the entire risala of Ibn Abi Zaid in one to two years, okay? The entire risala of all the chapters of fiqh, from Tahara, Salah, all the ritual law, and all of the interaction law, the basic fundamentals of it, right? You know, so for example, inheritance, you would do the immediate family and the brothers and the sisters, right? And then the other questions that come after The basic fundamentals of all things. The basic fundamental types of contracts that are valid in Islam, okay? Okay, the basic four types of war that exists in Islam. So the, the fundamentals. That would be done in years one, if not one and a half, Okay. Now, thereafter, thereafter, we would spend the rest of two and a half years, maybe two years minimum, okay, if it took us two years to do the film, we would spend it on all of these heavy aqaid polemical issues. And I only had them twice a week. And I think we did 29 chapters of the Risala that first year, plus hajj. We did 29 uh, what well, we started with Hajj And then we did, think we did 29 chapters We almost did all of it uh, We almost did uh, A good chunk of the risar, I should say Now, then I would go into Every single Akida related issue And I have a YouTube video out there On the seven essential verses Right? Okay Every Aqidah issue So that In their final year, they would spend the entire year doing a a, a paper on a specific issue and they would have been taught now how to go to Islamic resources, how to go to uh, what the resources are and what the contemporary resources. By the way, scholarship has changed. Scholarship in the past used to be, or I should say the format of it has changed. It used to be that if you wrote anything worthwhile, it was in this big leather book that had a fancy title, that had copious footnotes, that had, um, you know, that had been a work that took 20 years to do, today things are different. Things move way too fast. If you are a person in the field of scholarship and you have all these ideas and you're waiting to put that type of volume out there, okay, which you could do, but things are moving way too fast, Right, you need to get stuff out in a different format. When I go out and look at some some of their scholarship, uh, and it's specifically in refutation, uh, which we would call uh, a, the new type of kalam, really is what it is. It's a new wave, or the the new um, uh, generation, or a, a new epoch in dialectical theology, and it has nothing to do with uh, Greek logic. That's not the issue today, right? And it has all to do with what we know we're, we're dis- we all know we're discussing, right? All the postmodern and nonsense, post sanity and all this stuff. The format has changed. The format is in informal blogs, informal articles here and there. You'd have to scrap for them. You have to look for them. You have to collect them. Oftentimes the author may have some footnotes, may not, right? And you'd have to collect and scrap away. And this is the modic- or the medium of uh, how knowledge is, because the issues are moving so quickly and people need it so quickly, right? And also people, that this is where people are going. You, you have to go where people are going. And by the way, I am not saying in any way, shape or form that we need to get rid of the book, all right? I'm a big fan of books, but books should be sort of the final product. And in the process, you need to get your Your points out there, because especially in this field of theology, where it's a dire need to get your points out. And I want to go to shift to another point here uh, that I mentioned formality and informality. Today, everything is informal, right? Uh, Scholarship is informal. You have ulama on Twitter that you could tweet at. Okay, you have everything is informal. And I believe that there is a good and bad to informality the good part of it is where pretension kibber arrogance inaccessibility is stripped away i think this is good but when it comes to manners when it comes to carelessness when it comes to sloppiness i actually hold a a little theory that i have that this is actually one of those reverberations from atheism believe it or not that In theism, in any culture that believes in Allah, we believe that Allah is watching us that every single moment, every single moment, every single thing that we do is going to come back and we will see it as a credit or a debit, right? As a uh, deficit against us or a reward for us. Every single moment. And therefore, every single moment is a critical, serious, dead serious moment. And some are more more dead serious than others. But if think about this. Surah okay. Al-Zalzala. okay. If you do a atom's weight of good, you will see it. If you do an atom's weight of evil, you will see it. So my entering the bathroom... If I enter with my left foot As the messenger Sallallahu said Okay and, and believe it or not it's, You think that these things Become second nature Every once in a while You actually need to think about it And you stutter for a second Entering the masjid Or exiting the masjid And then there's a du'a to enter A du'a to exit Bathroom entering Exiting Istinja' Right At every single turn We're remembering Allah And we're knowing That this is going to come to us On yawm al qiyamah At every single moment Okay? If that's the case, then every single good deed should be celebrated. Everything single interaction should be given import. It is serious. It's not a joke, right? And therefore, over time, you would almost have a ritual around everything, right? Like almost like a, there's a ritual around everything. What I mean by that is eating, for example. Eating is a big deal. Right, the, the Prophets and the Mu'mineen Were commanded with the same thing And this is in the Nawi 40 hadith right? In the Prophet wasallam says Allah has commanded the MBA With the same thing With the, the Mu'mineen With the same thing He's commanded the MBA. And min tayyibati wa Eat from pure food and do good deeds Eating has always been considered a sacred thing Because we watch where we, our food comes from And of course t- taking it uh, into account That in the past To put a hot meal on the table mean that someone just had a fire on, which is not easy, right? And he couldn't easily reheat the food the way we do today. So, And it probably took all day for someone to get the food, and uh, food was a big deal. So eating is a ritual, right? Today, we just take this thing that is eating because we do this all the time. It's not treated with any honor anymore. And I think that if you want to infuse an ethos of belief... Okay, of, of seriousness about life, of sanctity of life, and uh, uh, you, you can symbolize all of that at the dinner table. Okay, the, the, the dinner, t- whether you sit on the table, the floor, I mean, I love eating on the floor, right? Uh, but if you have the table today, it's just haphazard, cheap, everything's garbage, trash, whatever. No, the way it should be done, if you're a family out there, if you're listening, Right, Uh, If you're a mom or a dad out there And if you have a little family Food should be taken The dinner should be taken seriously Not even to, to mention That sociologists have said The most stable kids One of their attributes of stability Is that they eat with their family At least five times a week That if they don't eat with their family Altogether that it's an exception The table should be prepared Fork on the left Napkin on the right Okay, The plate should be four fingers in In other words, you measure how where the plate is Four fingers in Someone's going to say, oh, who did this? And the sahaba never did this This is not about that This is about that everything should be Honored I mean, you, you, you don't know that When Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani Completed the great feat of his book On Sharh صح- of Sahih Bukhari They had a, an immense party And they had the first scribe Write a large portion of it in gold, ink, and hang it and give it as gifts to the nobles. It was a big deal. The uh, recitation of the Qur'an, Ibn Mas'ud, or was it Anas bin Malik, never did a khatm of Qur'an except that he gathered his entire family around because the malaika come down for the khitam of the Qur'an. The Prophet said 70,000 angels come down to attend the khitam of the Book of Allah okay so uh, the uh, concept of ritual what it does is it expresses meaning it expresses import it teaches social norms it reflects beliefs this is the function and purpose of ritual go look at the ottomans what they did with the army everything was a ritual the the putting on the kiswa of the kaaba was a ritual leaving for hajj they would all leave from a certain spot. They would gather in Istanbul. They would go to a certain place, okay, and from there a du'a would be made for them, and they would all go on the journey for Hajj. Everything was enshrouded, right? And these and and this uh, uh, some people have this crazy idea that uh, you know just because Islam is simple and the Sahaba is simple that none of this. No, yeah, we're not saying this is for fard, but we are saying this has a great psychological effect. Knife on the right facing inwards, spoon next to that cup between goes in front of that um, between the knife and the plate the the hot plate should be set in the middle. Everything should be done in order this gives stability it gives cleanliness cleanliness to the home it gives a young person growing up a sense of order whereas if it's just haphazard chaos the kitchen table is filled with stuff throw any plates out there paper plates red plates red cup black cup uh, everything is different it just it's a daily visual of haphazardness and that's your doing well i mean if you want someone stable if you want a stable and adjusted person then you need stable and adjusted habits. And eating together is one of the biggest habits. If you get dinner right with the family, you've really gotten 50% right because eating together, and I've mentioned this many times, it is a school in and of itself. It's a school in and of itself. It's a therapy in and of itself because in eating together, a lot of subjects come up. Expressions on people's faces show, are you upset? What's going on? Right? You can talk about things. Uh, children learn vocabulary and they learn about adult life By overhearing their parents' conversations at the dinner table okay? They learn about manners of food The dua of food is their tawheed Daily tawheed right? Thinking about the poor D- eat, eat all your food because there are kids all right? there, I mean you, got, you learn geography There are kids in Guatemala There are kids in Africa There are kids in India who don't have what you have right? They're learning geography. They don't know Guatemala or Africa. Every kid in America knows about Africa from the dinner table when they're told, go and look at the kids in Africa and what they have to go through. And you're whining and complaining because you don't want to eat this food, right? So much is learned. Uh, also scheduling. You, you schedule around dinner, All right, we got to do this before dinner, after dinner. So it creates stability. It's a big deal. And the idea of ritual to me is an important thing. Formality uh, uh, is just going down the tube because nothing has any real meaning anymore right? The sweatpants today is just drives me nuts, honestly. No one cares about their appearance anymore. It used to be like if you got caught out in sweatpants, maybe you were doing something, you were mowing the lawn, and you had to go get a part from Home Depot, or you had to go get something for your lawnmower. You got caught, and then you said, you know, let me just shrink by the masjid, pray while I'm at it, um, or something, and you got caught in your sweatpants. Today, it's part of people's wardrobe. Right? Go to Europe, okay, and ask the people if their parents ever, ever go to Egypt, go to Japan, China, okay, any culture, any place where they had any semblance of civilization and culture, and ask them would your parents have ever been caught being seen with this ridiculous garment, this cheap garment that People where now in public, to school, to juma, okay honestly if I had if I had if I had a masjid that I like actually ran that wasn't a community center, see we, we run a community center, which is a little bit of controlled chaos, right? Right, right what I'm part of at New Brunswick it's what what one of our uh, leaders says it's a form of controlled chaos, okay But if I had my own little masjid, And I ran it from top. First thing I would get is a couple security guards, right? Can you enter certain restaurants except that you have to at least be dressed in a certain way? There are certain restaurants you have to be dressed up to go to the restaurant, right? You have to wear a certain tie and a jacket to enter the restaurant. I would actually hire some guards. That's the first thing I would hire, okay? And you're, com- you're not coming into this house of Allah. This is Allah's place of worship, right? And you know better. There's nobody whose only set of clothes is his pajamas. And we got people who come to Juma in pajamas, right? It drives me absolutely mad. And I'm seeing this kid, he rolled out of bed. He didn't have to go to school today. Or some people work from home in their flannel pajama pants and flip-flop sandals and a t-shirt and his hat backwards. He came to, he woke up, brushed his teeth, took a wudu and rolled into the masjid for Jummah. I would send him back. I would say, I know you're a computer programmer. Okay, go put some clothes on. You came here driving. That means you can afford gas. You have clothes, okay? You're not some miskeen poor. So this Jummah has to be treated properly. Everything has to be treated properly. Why? I mean, this—the the the, the, we we're the reverberations of meaninglessness reflect in what we do day to day. The again, that's really what it is. It's the reverberations, the trickle down of meaninglessness of life, which is what the atheist world. If think about it, if millions upon millions upon millions of people in a society don't believe that there's ultimately Any real meaning that's uh, uh, beyond this one minute, this second, to their action and their life, then informality will reign, right? Nothing will be taken seriously, okay? That any type of seriousness, besides that it has no meaning, that any type of ritual, any type of order or hierarchy will be merely a power grab by someone, Okay. That even parents, right? Western philosophy of parenting, a lot of people, right? Parents do not believe that their children owe them pretty much anything, right? Like respect, even. Even one guy said, listen, I didn't, I didn't, they didn't ask to be brought into the world, right? We brought them into the world. They didn't ask to be brought into the world, right? So why should I make any demands of them, right? They're not here on an at-will agreement. They're sort of coerced and forced. I mean, this is an absurd and ridiculous view of the parent-child relationship. And all of it stems from the same thing. Okay. No concept, no sense of uh, uh, of the grand purpose and scheme of life on this earth. And this is the one thing, okay, that Islam will continue to have, and to continue to offer, and it will continue to justify it by having rational basis for accepting the transmissions of the Prophet We know where they came from, and that this is truly what the Prophet said. The content is one thing, but you need to have a rational basis of why I should accept that this content is real. So yeah, the Buddhists have a lot of great things, but why should I really accept that the Buddha even existed? So we have a rational basis for what the Prophet ﷺ, that he existed, uh, والسلام, that his transmissions to us are true and sound. All right. This is they're not lies and myths. And then secondly, the main purpose or the main thing that uh, Islam gives the people is purpose, sense of meaning in life. And also Christianity and Judaism does it, do this too, but they have the transmission problem. why should I, you can't even prove to me that your books are authentic, all right? How do I know I'm not believing myths that men made up? So this is the main thing that we have to be passionate about, that we have to know that civilization will ultimately spiral out of control. And I believe if you don't see that it's already gone out of control, right? That it's just a matter of time before things, we start to harm ourselves. And the modern world, will as it is, will continue to exist prov- and, and this is how it's always is with everything, provided that it's making more people happy than not. Because and th- something could be haram. And something could be harmful in the long run. But if at this moment it's making people happy, satisfied, and and and, and everything is okay, right? Then it will continue to persist in the earth until it starts to harm people. And then that's when you know time is up, right? Yes, yeah, something could be displeasurable to Allah Azza wa but Allah Azza wa no longer, like in the olden days, the system of the Prophet comes, he tells the people, you're doing something wrong, until Allah tells him, okay, leave, and then those people are destroyed. It doesn't work like that anymore, if you haven't noticed, right? And the Mu'fuqaha tell us, since the time of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, there no, no cities are destroyed anymore Like in the olden times Right It's not like that anymore Nowadays it's the Muslims who come with the message And they, they give it and people take it Or they reject it But the only time that change will occur Is either when people stop believing in something And they believe in something different Which is, you know, they convert into Islam Or they change their ideas Or it starts to be a source of harm for people it starts to be a source of harm, and it starts to, to really bother a lot of people, and everyone starts talking about it, and the society itself correct itself, okay? And we can have, you can have massive changes, but they're going to be slowing over time. Like, the whole idea of a monarchy was very beneficial for a long time. It started to be harmful. The British system of hierarchy, which leads me to, 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 to the point of, the, you have to study the British system of hierarchy, and how this system and the rebellion against the system and the great amount of harm that this British hierarchy system uh, put uh, against a lot of people, the great amount of harm is why we have the world today as we have it with this allergy to hierarchy, right? This hate of any idea that these people should be respected, right? That, that, that we do have, not all people are all equal, Right? Yes, people are equal in justice People are equal in humanity People are equal in their having a soul People are equal in their degree of receiving mercy But not all people should be thanked and honored in the same way Okay, and what you could say is that people are different mutafawat Quran says, the the Arabic word for that is mutafawat In how they're honored Okay, the king is not honored in the same way that the local teacher is Both are honored, but not the same way So when monarchy went bad, okay, when they stopped doing their job, which was their job was that the people who were vulnerable, the king was basically like a sort of uh, military leader. He led them, he protected them, right? And because of his protection, the people were safe. So we thank him, we honored him. The nobles were people who uh, employed and and, 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 and were a source of, of living for many people. When that all changed and went away, what did we do? We got rid of the system. It's not working anymore. And, and I'm telling you, so much of Western systems are merely reactions to British laws and British ways of doing things. And these ways would not have been compatible with our Sharia to begin with. You could not have lords and these estates in England that they have in England. You could not have that in the Islamic world for one simple reason. The only way that you had these lords, which were families that inherited and amassed such an amount of property, land, and wealth that you couldn't imagine, that it could never have happened in one generation. Okay? This is generational wealth. And the only way that this amount of wealth could fall into the hands of one family would be that it be inherited from one man to one man for several generations at a time. And this is impossible in Islam because of the inheritance laws. You take down Tanabi. Everyone knows, uh, every, uh, everyone's basically been exposed to uh, the show, uh, uh, which takes place in the, I don't know, 1800s, where there's this massive estate and uh, it's owned by one guy and it's going to be passed on to one guy. Right? From his father, to him, to his son, and it's one man, basically like a little monarchy. And it, it, the estate is the size of like a town. He owns it, right? And everyone pays them rent, and they employ the people and keep the peace. Okay, fair deal. Why would this never happen in Islam? Because it takes generations to amass that amount of wealth. That's number one. And w- when that, you amass any amount of wealth, The inheritance laws will intentionally break up that wealth so that from a very rich man, you will end up with many middle class people. And any good society has a very thick middle class, right? So any wealthy man, a super wealthy man, the people who inherit from him will be wealthy. A wealthy man, the people will inherit from him will be middle class. A middle-class man, when he dies, the people will inherit from him, will just get a little bit of pocket change, right? You're hardly going to get anything. Maybe something that you could maybe make one little investment with. So the point is that the inheritance laws breaks up wealth so that you don't have power all sucked up into one man. But the British did not do this. They gave the inheritance, all of it, to the first son, all of it so when you have this generation after generation you end up with a regular guy being born and just by fact that he was the firstborn of the firstborn of the firstborn of the firstborn he ends up inheriting a ridiculous amount of wealth and having this estate and how does this make any sense okay so uh if you look at the british system that's what produced this reaction if you look at the laws pertaining to women okay It makes sense that feminism developed in England, right? It all started in England with with very basic things, okay? Women, they didn't inherit. They didn't have a say in anything, etc., etc. And if you look at, if you contrast that with Sharia, which is divine guidance, and we're not taking any credit for it, right? Because this is something that no human being would have thought of these things. It's only if we had revelation, right that that we would come to 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 know these things that all of these things were counter would not have existed in the sharia so the whole point of sharia is the balance that avoids this these crazy reactions and i'm telling you right now there's a a, a right now the 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 me too campaign is getting a lot of Uh, attraction and attention to the idea of speaking up about abuse, and I'm totally in support of it, right, Uh, anyone who knows or any sees, this is just common, to to me it's common sense, but maybe if uh, somehow it wasn't an issue, now it's an issue, right, and it's an issue that we would be on board with, anyone who knows of any abuse, and and this is part of our Sharia to begin with, stay out of a position that would even come near being accused, even come near to be accused. Okay. And secondly, in a jahili society, I can guarantee you, I can guarantee you that there are some forces out there, right, that will swing the pendulum the other way, right? That in the West, you never have anything called the middle. There's always extremes. It's constantly moving from one extreme to the next. That's the nature of the West, right? Right? That is the nature of the West. So look at how diverse we got. We, have, we got uh, uh, there are a black man in office. Look at the reaction. Literally, the rebirth of neo-Nazis, right? The rebirth of white supremacy. When did it happen, right? When did it come out open in the public where there's enough people who believe in it, right? Open in the public came out after, okay, Obama's time. Before that, yeah, of course it was always there, but it wasn't manifested. I mean, you you would be laughed at and, 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 and a joke, David Duke. Now you have teenagers, and by the way, youth, teenagers recently in Virginia, there was a teenage kid who got sucked up into this, became a neo-Nazi white supremacist, and now they try to make it sound like fancy by calling it white supremacist, right? As if it's like, make it sound like some kind of I don't know, uh, academic almost. Uh, he starts talking to his girlfriend. He's maybe 16 years old. Starts talking about his girlfriend and getting these ideas. And she starts bringing this stuff up at the kitchen table, at the dinner table, which is another reason why dinner's important, because stuff comes up. Uh, and she brings it up at the table and her parents say, you know, this stuff is outlandish right? What are you doing? And her mom suggests to her, you know, get rid of this guy. And they have a fight about it in the beginning. But finally, she comes around to realize that this guy, he's gone off the rocker. So he called, she calls him up. And she says, I need you to stop, we need to break up. And I need you to stop calling. So he doesn't take no for an answer. Okay. She calls, the girl's mom calls the boy's mom and says, we need, they need to break this up. Right. The kid doesn't take no for an answer. That night, he climbs through her window and, you know, starts to try to talk her out of it. The the dad hears this, opens his daughter's door, and sees the kid on the bed with the girl chit-chat and talking, trying to convince her out of this, right? The dad goes ballistic, kicks him out of the house, okay? The kid turns around, pulls a gun out, and shoots the dad, then runs downstairs, shoots the mom, and then tries to shoot himself, but fails. Shoots himself in the head, or wherever he shot himself, but failed to kill himself. And the girl, the daughter, watches all this. So, white supremacy and this neo-Nazi idea is trickling down to young people, okay? It's not going anywhere. So the West is a place of extremes, constant extremes. There's, there is there is just, you don't know where it's going. I'm telling you, these people, you cannot follow them. You will get a headache. You, will, you, they, you don't know where they're taking you. Don't be one of these people who follow these trends, really. Now, I'm, I'm telling you, you look at Sharia and Sunnah and Islam, and the marketing is not that great from the aspect that you look around at the Muslim countries And you're like, okay, well, this is not some example. And it's true. They are not examples. And I'll just give you a very simple anecdotal thing that I think a lot of people also realize. I have to say it's very sad for me that when I'm walking in America, the only time that I walk somewhere in America that draws my emotions and my memories back to the Islamic world is when I pass an open sewer, and when I smell the sewage, it recalls my moments in the Islamic world, in the Muslim countries. It is the saddest, most pathetic, most ridiculous, furthest from the sunnah reality, but that's the reality of the the Muslim world. And tell me that you haven't had this experience, Tell me that you haven't, in the West, in America, in England, in Australia, passed by open sewage and this horrible smell, but it has brought back a recall of the Muslim world. And I would tell you, it's just one of the worst things. And when I come back and I see, and I land every time I travel, come back, and I land in one of my favorite places, Newark Liberty Airport, okay? And I see, go out and I see the curb. Oh my gosh, I haven't seen a curb like a clean, like street and then curb and then sidewalk. I haven't seen that for the last three weeks. Why? Because it was filled with litter in Cairo, it was filled with trash everywhere else. You don't see curbs in those countries. You don't see the curb. You see the street, and then between the street and the sidewalk is a layer of trash. And you see the streets, and I'm just, all, all I do when I come back from the Muslim world is look at the streets. The only place where I feel that I totally adjust, and I feel there's a seamless adjustment, seamless transition, is Istanbul. That's the only place. These are the only people who got it right. And some people tell me Malaysia, but Malaysia's too far off. The only people who got it right, and I'm telling you, it's just cleanliness. Cleanliness. It's absurd. It's ridiculous. Right? This issue. I don't even know where what we, what we were talking about right? that got me off on this subject that always gets me off, which is the cleanliness of the Islamic world. So we're going to take a break and we'll be right back. You can now access pre-recorded Safina Society classes at safina-online.teachable.com. That's safina-online.teachable.com. Thank you and we look forward to seeing you there. Enjoy the rest of the podcast. Alright, we're back and... I have no idea where we left off. We were talking about the importance of ritual; that every moment matters, and the idea of ritual is something that you even see trickled down to the Europeans. Uh, we were talking about the British and their uh, extre- uh, and their um, the sources of modernity and modern modern social movements and their swings and their pendulum swings and extremes. Uh, oftentimes, goes back to. Laws and ways of doing things in England that were jahili, that were enforced and caused a reaction. And I'm also, I was also talking about how rituals, you can notice in old Europe, they did have a lot of ritual. They probably overdid it. But what I'm saying is that in our lives, we should not adopt the informal, informality, the cheapness of everything. Because I do believe that if you actually take everything to its logical conclusion and realize how important every moment of life is, that we will be asked about it, that it should be treated with some uh, with seriousness and with some decorum, okay, and even some symbolism, that our eating should be treated with symbolism, should be treated with order, that our salah should be a big deal, that our, uh, uh, that we should not do silly things like uh, uh, treat the, uh, it drives me sort of nuts when uh, religious things are treated cheaply, right? Little paper kabbas out of tissue boxes in Islamic schools. This is the Kaaba. Why should it be done with a tissue? You want to make a model? Make a real model. Right. Make that something that the upperclassmen do in their uh, workshop class with real materials, not a Kleenex box that a kindergartner takes and says, makes the Kaaba out of it. To me, it's not haram, but I just don't see how we're transmitting. uh, uh, And I'm not going to go make a revolution out of it in the Islamic schools, but how are we transmitting an aura, a majesty, an awe of religious symbols when they become treated so cheaply out of the masjid, and I know that Masajid have financial uh, troubles. I know that, right? I would rather do nothing than do something cheap, right? Uh, uh, that things are done cheaply. Uh, that we imagine, oh, and Allah will accept anything. It's the, our emotions that matter, our intentions that matter. If we're f- no, what is that? Is it that cheap to you? Who, that if it's your intention that matters then put it in your actions right that we do stuff so cheaply and just imagine oh, it's the intention that matters or none of this really matters only that matters is the khushua and the salah. We totally lost the plot of how human beings work and how the psychology around symbolism, ritual and excellence impact what we tr- what, the feelings that we have about something right? And going anywhere in, in secular society when they really care about something. And the sad thing is that, I be, that they care more to see that some people. I'm not generalizing here. To see that some people, not everyone, care more about their causes that have nothing, that reverberate nothing beyond this life. More so than we care about ours. Okay. More so than we care about ours. And that should be an embarrassment to us. That should be an embarrassment in any event that's a wrap for today Jazakum Khairan for listening and we'll be back again soon assalamu alaikum thank you for listening and please don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at safinasociety.org